As you know, last week uh, I was away, I was preaching at one of our expositor seminary uh, church campuses um, once a year. Uh, all of the pastors of the 11 churches, there are 11 churches that are part of Expositor Seminary. We are, we are one of those churches. The senior pastors from all of those churches gather together uh, in the summer, and uh, we do what's called a, a summit. So we have a board meeting four times a year, but this is the only time the pastors uh, get together alone and talk about the condition of the seminary, expansion, what's, uh, what's going on, and otherwise. And somebody, some brilliant uh, individual, had the idea of having it in July in Phoenix, Arizona. Can you believe that? <laughs> uh, we got there, and the people in the church were saying, now, I, I know why everybody's coming on Monday, but why now? Why not January in Phoenix? But July is when they picked, because that's when we normally do it, and we have rotated through every one of the churches. They were... All of those guys were here, I think five years ago, four years ago, something like that. And we only have one other church to go, and that's in Huntsville, um, Alabama. And we'll have rotated through all 11, 11 campuses. But knowing that I was coming in for that meeting, um, Dr. Scott Christmas, who actually preached for us here on, uh, I think it was our 75th anniversary service, uh, asked me to speak at uh, Northwest Community Church in Phoenix, um, the church there has been around for a while, and there's a lot of similarities with, uh, with Timberlake. Uh, not just the pulpit, but the preaching, the doctrine. Um, but they started, uh, that church started a Christian school a long time ago, and it's now the largest Christian school in Arizona. Uh, really big, it's right there on the, on the campus. And as I said, we were there for, for board meetings, but it was also Northwest's groundbreaking Sunday. So they're doing a, a large expansion and so all of that together, I was preaching in, uh, in, in light of that. It was billed as the shortest groundbreaking in history because the temperature outside at groundbreaking time, which was after the first service, before the second service, they have a sandwich service like us. So during Sunday school, they had the groundbreaking. It was 115 degrees. Um, and it was full midday sun uh, because they had cut all the trees down on the campus to build. So there's nowhere to get other than just stand there. And I want to tell you, it doesn't matter whether it's dry heat or not. At 115, it feels like you're standing in a hairdryer. It was, it was horrible. So after the first service, uh, we hurriedly surrounded, surrounded the building site, prayed, and went back inside where I had about 15 minutes to evaporate all the sweat before the second service. And um, while I was there, while I'm thankful to, to minister uh, wherever the Lord opens the door, um, I am always homesick to get back to, uh, to you. Um, I miss my church family whenever, uh, whenever I'm gone. And, and that's only eased by the privilege of knowing you're a slave of Christ and the Lord uses you in, in different ways. But but as I considered what to preach to them, my mind went, a groundbreaking Sunday, my mind went to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And it was a message about the sweetness of Christian unity. And it reminded me of you so much that I really just wanted to preach it to you this morning. Tonight we're going to be in the Creation and Culture series, a new message there in Genesis 3. Um, We've been in Romans, uh, but this morning we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. So open your Bibles there, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Paul's letter to this beloved church. 
I think it reminded me of you not only because of the, the, the topic of, of unity and what I was feeling in my heart for you, but when we were preaching through this letter about three years ago, we started it right before COVID. And so I am preaching this, this, this book, this letter to the Philippian church, a beautiful church, a wonderful church, a church that doesn't have a lot of, of doctrinal issues while I'm separated from you. I, I, you see me on a screen, I see my wife and maybe three other people here. And, and it, was a, it was a weird experience. And this is the first message in the book of Philippians that I preached when we all were able to gather back together. And we're called to pursue this unity that we have in the gospel um, together as we labor before the, uh, for the Lord's return. That's what this passage emphasizes. A biblical church, uh, unified around sound doctrine, operating on a biblical philosophy of ministry is a precious thing. It really is. There's, there's nothing else on earth like it. I have been uh, in a church where there was disunity and been a member where there's unity. I have pastored a church where there was disunity and then unity came. And I've been here starting the 17th year at Timberlake. And it's sweet, the unity that we have around the the doctrines of, of Christ. And the church is a precious thing. There's nothing like it on the earth. And in fact, the church alone has Christ's promise. We have a a new members class coming up on Saturday, and I'll go over uh, some of the, the, the amazing things the Scriptures say about the, about the church. Jesus declares in Matthew 16, I will build my church. There's nothing on earth that has that promise. Not a, not a seminary, even if it's in a church, not a, not a, a parachurch organization, whatever it be, uh, is. Jesus gives that promise to His to his church alone. There's nothing else that has, that, that has the eternal bonds that the, 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 the church has. I mean, I'm sure you love your family like I love my family, but, but not even the most intimate of human relationships has, has the kind of, of eternal promise that the, the church does. In fact, Jesus said the gospel can actually bring a sword in the midst of, of relatives. Uh, the truth of the gospel can divide father and son and mother and daughter and husband and, and wife. And, and in another place, Jesus, when he's confronting the, the Pharisees, reminded them that marriage is something exclusive for the earth. It was created to, to present the, the eternal model of Christ and his church. But, but it ends here. We'll, we'll not marry nor marriage in, in, in heaven. And not even death itself can conquer the church. That's what that passage means about the gates of hell or the, the gates of Hades will not prevail. The church goes beyond the grave. When you go through the gate in, into, into the grave, the, the church goes right through that gate and right out the other side. It, it's, a, it's an eternal thing. And if that wasn't enough, the Bible says that Jesus Christ shed His blood for the church. Acts 20, 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. And anything that Jesus sheds His blood for is precious. And the book of Philippians is about joy that fills our lungs with gospel air. And there's no place that the gospel can be seen more clearly than in a unified church. You're called to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel, 
to know the gospel, but as a church, a church that's unified around the things that the Bible will tell us this morning, it, 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 uh, it exhibits the gospel, it displays the gospel. And there's nothing more joyful than to be part of a, of a unified church. And the opposite is true. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating and more disheartening than being part of an unhealthy church, a church that's full of disunity. And some of you may have experienced that prior to, prior to Timberlake, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. We need the church. In fact, it's not possible, as I'll say on, on Saturday, to obey the New Testament without being part of a, of a local assembly. I mean, you can't obey the one another commands to the universal church. The fruit of the Spirit is not born in isolation, and your spiritual gifts are not for yourselves. It's for others. It's, it's for the church, and not the church at large, but, but the church duly gathered. That you, You're in covenant with, with one another. The one another's are fulfilled to the people that you sit beside every, every Sunday. And you need the church. I mean, you can check yourself pretty easily. I mean, is it easier or more difficult to maintain a pursuit of the Lord when you're away from the church? And not just any church, but your church, people that that know you, people that, that can call you on the, the, the besetting sins that are, that, that are in, your, in your life? I mean, do you find the slimy slide into complacency more or less likely whenever, whenever you're here on Sunday or sometime during the week whenever you're, you're away? I mean, is it easier or harder to think rightly when you're not sitting under the Word of God or around others that are trafficking in the, in the Scriptures? I mean, I could go on, but... but my point is that, that you and I need the church. It's, it's necessary. A biblical church, a church unified around the, the right things, maintaining unity the, the right way with, with biblical leadership. And that, that's what God's going to teach us about the, this morning. And since we're parachuting into the middle of this book, so let, me, let me orient you, you, you a little. Our verse drops us right into chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 2 this morning. Um, but that's a continuation of Paul's Christ-like exhortations that he starts back in verse 27. So look at Philippians 1, verse 27. Here's where the whole, this whole section begins. Verse 27, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he continues that this section all the way through verse 18 of, of chapter 2, where, where Paul says, I too urge you to rejoice in the same way and share with my joy. He gives then three practical examples of, of, of how to live this way. He gives himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And in between, you have a number of calls to, to live out this praiseworthy life. And, and right in the middle of it, you have this model of Christ himself, which you know well in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 12. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it describes the humility of our Lord, who, who was God and worshiped 24 hours a day and and, and, and had the rights of, of deity, and yet he, he laid aside those privileges, and he, he condescended. He didn't call us to come up to him because we couldn't. He came to us. He condescended to where we were, and, 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 and he did that by taking on the, the, the incarnation. He took on human flesh, and, and he walked among us, and not just as a man, but, 
but in the form of a, of a servant, and he humbled himself unto death, not just any death, but death on the cross, a crucified Savior. And because of that, the Bible says that Jesus Christ will be highly exalted by God the Father above all things and everything, that, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord, and that's coming one day. But that's the model that we have. He, he's our master, and so we follow him. And this is the section that, that Paul's in, the, this, these Christ-like exhortations. It begins in verse 27 and goes through verse 18. Paul calls us to live a gospel-worthy life outside of the church. At the end of chapter 1, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he goes on and talks about how people outside of the church will see that life and it will be an evidence to them that they're not believers and it will be encouragement to other believers outside of the local church if you live a gospel-worthy life. So he calls us to do that outside of the church. And now in chapter 2, he's calling us to do that inside the the church. Be of the same mind, maintaining the the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. All of that's how do you live a gospel-worthy life inside the, the church? And you see, while, while this church, the wonderful church at Philippi, has no doctrinal issues that we can tell of, there's no moral decay, there are no false teachers that, that we know of, it has a small and yet noxious weed growing in the corner of its garden that Paul doesn't want it to spread. It's, it's called the dandelion of division. You have somebody spray your yard for dandelions, or do you? You cringe whenever, if you're that way, whenever a relative comes over and they pick one of those up and they blow it. It goes all over the yard. It's a good illustration for division in the church. It doesn't start with everybody getting turned up. It starts with one person nibbling over here and biting over there and then that dandelion of division spreads throughout the the church. And in chapter 4, Paul says there are actually two dandelions in... In the Philippian church, there are two women in the church that Paul calls out by name. Philippians 4, 1 and 2. And he calls them to live in harmony in the Lord. And in our passage, he gives us an instruction manual on how to keep discord out of our congregational gardens. Now, now we understand. When we get to chapter 4, which we won't go there this morning, when Paul calls out these two women, we understand why he front loads his book with all of this, this discussion about being of the same mind and intent on on the same purpose. And so that instruction manual is given to us in verses 1 through through 4. It has three parts, and they're purposely ordered. Paul starts with the the motivations for for unity. Here's why. Here's why you should strive for unity in in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, there's the why, there's the motivation. All that God has done for you in Christ is our motive to maintain unity in the church. Then he he gives the definition of unity or what unity looks like in verse 2. That's what we'll look at today. Paul's, he'll define that. Make my joy complete. Here's the definition. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then how do you do that? Here's the method to pursue unity in the the church. You might be motivated, motivated, you know what it is, But how do you go on maintaining unity once you have it in the gospel? Well, here it is in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish 
or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And if you do that, you'll have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. MacArthur called these four verses the formula for spiritual unity in the church, the motivations, the marks, and the means. And when we're done, you'll have a step-by-step diagram of what Paul means by standing firm in one spirit. Now, you probably know that we're called to have unity in the church. You probably also know that you're commanded to promote it and you're never to contribute to disunity. It's something the world talks about, Christians bickering amongst themselves. You probably know all of that. But before we seek unity, you have to understand exactly what it is. I mean, what are we called to, to do here? I mean, what is unity? Is unity the idea that... that that, that no one has a differing opinion in the church and no one ever disagrees about anything? I mean, is it holding hands and singing campfire songs? Is that unity in the, in the church? I mean, is it unanimity? Is it conforming to the opinions of others for, for the sake of getting a, a, along? I mean, unity is a favorite topic in liberal churches, and that's what they mean by unity. No convictions, just go along to get along. Let's just cut all of the the sharp edges off of doctrine so we can just kind of stay in this mush middle. Sometimes the the topic is misused in the opposite direction, not by liberals, but by doctrinally sound churches. They use it to uh, to squelch any type of question or dissent. I mean, don't ask questions. Don't disrupt the unity. Don't challenge the elders. That's surely not what the Bible means either. If you see elders going astray, you should challenge them from a biblical standpoint. There's instructions of how to do that. While gospelist churches promote hollow unity and heavy-handed leaders love to use it as a club, it's true that we can, as believers, trample the real unity in the church ourselves, or we wouldn't have this passage. I mean, here's proof that we're able to do that. Shamefully, some Christians are just known for not getting along with others, aren't they? I mean, they're the fussing few, or in our circles, the battling Baptists, contending for the faith. It doesn't mean that the church looks more like the OK Corral than Christ's crown. It's, it's contradicting the faith, not contending for the faith. It's not what we, we're aiming at either. I mean, what we want to know is how does God define biblical unity? And that's exactly what you have in Philippians 2.2. It spells out biblical unity very clearly here in four ways. To help us understand what it is, it, it says it in four slightly different emphases, or emphases so, so we're, we're able to define it. It's like four windows to see inside of the same room or four links in the, uh, a chain connected to the same tow bar. The outline couldn't be any more straightforward and the combined meaning any more, any more profound. There are four characteristics of Christian unity here in verse 2. A unified church possesses one mind. It's a church that pursues one love. It's a church that preserves one spirit. And a church that's preoccupied with one purpose. It's the kind of church that is motivated by the cross and God uses to do great things on the, on the earth. Let's look at the first one. 
The first characteristic of Christian unity is found when a church possesses one mind. Look if you would at verse 2. Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. There's the, the first uh, word here, first phrase and first word. I mean, Paul begins with the motivations to seek unity in verse 1, and now he defines what we're aiming at in these using three phrases, four characteristics of, of unity. And the, the, the imperative of this section, the command, is, is found in verse 2. Fill up his joy. That's the command of this section. Make my joy complete. Fill up the joy. I already have joy for you. Fill it up. Complete it. That's the command. How is this church going to do that for the Apostle Paul? The way that we accomplish that is by fulfilling what's in verse 2. And the way that you do that is by being motivated by what Christ has done for us in verse 1. I mean, everything listed in verse 2 is a response to what the Lord has done for us in verse 1. If you're not motivated by what's in verse 1, you'll never pursue what's in verse 2. What's in verse 1? Well, look at it. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, it's a, it's a, you could say because there is encouragement. I mean, this is the idea. If there is any encouragement in Christ... Of course there is, because there is. If there's any consolation of love, of course there is, because there is. So you could say, because there is encouragement in Christ's work. Aren't you encouraged by Christ's work? I mean, we're, we're in the middle of Romans. We just came out of Romans 3, 21 through 26, where we just slowed down and pulled off the side of the road to the scenic overlook and and just pondered the gospel there for about five sermons. When you, when you think about the, the work that Christ has done on the, on the cross, aren't you encouraged by that? He says, because there is consolation in God's love, aren't you, aren't you consoled, aren't you comforted by the, by the love of God, especially whenever you're confronted with your sin? You're confronted with your sin. You're looking into the mirror of the Scriptures, and you see how, how short you fall and... And then right along with that, with that ugly portrait that we see, the, the Spirit of God brings the gospel in there and says, yes, this is an ugly picture, but look over here. God loved you in spite of that. And, and because He loved you, he, he sent Christ to die for your sins. Aren't you encouraged by that? You're consoled by that? When, when you feel desperate over your sin? It's great love wherewith He loved us. And then He says, because there's fellowship and affection in the in the Spirit's ministry, because there's fellowship of the Spirit and affection and, and compassion, doesn't the Spirit, when He draws you together with, with other believers, near to other believers, produces these things in your heart? You find a fellowship that you've never known before? Isn't, isn't that motivating to you? Isn't it, doesn't that make you want to, to serve the church and, and serve others? Well, it does. And because every believer has experienced these things. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've experienced everything that's in verse 1. Because every believer has experienced these things, then therefore every believer is exhorted to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Meaning we have absolutely no excuse not to fulfill biblical unity because we've all experienced the same biblical work and we're encouraged by it. You have extraordinary motivations to seek unity in, in the church. 
And how can we gather to celebrate all that the Lord has given us? I and mean, that's why we come together to celebrate. How can we celebrate all that the Lord has given us and then not give Him what is most precious in His sight? Unity in the church. Unity around the gospel. Well, we can't. And that unity is present, Paul says, when we have one mind. Make my joy complete, being of the, the, the same mind. It contains the word to think. Christianity is not a, a mindless religion. It's just the opposite. The Bible over and over tells you what to think, calls you to think. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here is a thinking word. It's one of Paul's favorite words in Philippians. He uses it about ten times. He uses it over and over because he wants the Philippians to be what he calls like-minded. It's the same word that he uses for those two women in Philippians 4.2. Be of the same mind. He's not saying put a, 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 you, you have to think exactly like uh, uh, each other in, in all of your issues outside of the church. He's calling them to be of the same mind, possess one mind in the church, inside the church. Paul's not calling for the same thoughts or feelings here about every detail of life. It, as one put it, he, he doesn't want to put ditto marks around every Christian. And the idea is to seek the same goal from the same basis. And when you do that, you're like-minded. You're, you're thinking the same. He's not prohibiting personal diversity, like, like you all must enjoy the same foods or hobbies or, or, or styles. It's fine if you like the, the Yankees or the Red Sox, or maybe no sports at all. That was for Pastor Brody. You don't have to like the same styles of music. You can carry an ESV or a King James. You can be a vegetarian or love bacon. I prefer the latter of those two. You can enjoy stylish things, or you can like uh, Carhartt. Being of a one mind is to have your overall thinking set to the same calibrating source. It's to have your directional compasses in the church pointing to the same north. This, this one mind is like the magnet that draws all the little slivers of metal together. You remember those? You, I think you can still get them at Cracker Barrel, the... The, the picture of the little guy, he has like a face and, and you can put beards on him or otherwise the magnet drags all those little things around. That, that magnet is the one mind that Paul's talking about here. You come from different backgrounds and different styles and different everything else, but in Christ, you, you're drawn together. The magnet here is this, is this one mind. And that one place is this settled disposition of an entire person for Christ. The dominant attitude of your heart is for the church. The consistent uh, pursuit of your life is the gospel. You can be together on that. And it's the same. I mean, Paul basically says you can't think the same way outside of the church, but you must think the same way inside the church. You must. You may not have the same opinions or likes. And if you try to find unity in them, you're not going to have biblical unity. You may have a unity with some subgroup or some sub-like, but that's not the unity that Paul's talking about here. Biblical unity flies at a much higher altitude than culture or background or personal perspectives. I mean, churches will talk about unity, even try to manufacture it, and Paul 
says that's not possible through a program or produced by anything else, but, but other than, than, than this possessing one mind. I mean, church unity comes when everybody's motivated by the same thing, the, the things that Paul just got done mentioning. And an individual believer has his mind set on the encouraging work of Christ, the consolation of God's love, the fellowship and affection of the Spirit's ministry. And when you're all thinking, the, the, you think about those things, you'll all be thinking the same way as a church, and you'll experience the blessing of unity. And when you don't, you won't. Because there's too many other things that can motivate you, splinter you off, left or right, or whatever it might be. I mean, the only way to have it is is to gain the mind of Christ, which is what Paul says in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you. In yourselves, it's the plural. Have this attitude in you as a church. It's the exact same word. And every time I hear that phrase, mind of Christ, you, you know I always think about my ordination when the pastor that was, that was preaching told about his father's response whenever he said he was leaving his job to go into ministry. And I haven't forgotten that because I was in business before salvation and a company I helped started and I left that to become a midnight shift security guard with a wife and three kids. And that's not conventional wisdom, humanly speaking. And when this brother told his father he was leaving his job for ministry, you know the story. His dad said, have you lost your mind? To which he responded, I have, and I've gained the mind of Christ. And if you want unity in the church, you have to lose your own mind, and you have to gain the mind of Christ. and Remove those differences, whatever they might be, the ones that are not eternal, the ones that don't matter. And I'm not saying things don't matter. As long as you have your own mind, though, meaning your own perspective or way of thinking, you'll never accomplish what Paul's calling for here. I mean, it really boils down to having two attitudes or two minds in the Bible. One that's set on heavenly things, the Father's will. One that's set on the things of the earth, Philippians 3.19. Romans 8 actually tells us they're contrary. These two minds, these two attitudes, the one that was in Christ, the one that's in the flesh, they're contrary to one another. It says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, and the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. The, the human mind is in rebellion. It doesn't want to submit, or it's not even able to do so. The natural man doesn't understand the things of God, and now you've, got an, you've received a new mind. The mind of the flesh thinks more highly of yourself than you should. It's focused on the things of the earth rather than eternity. Its lingo is my rights and my agenda and my feelings. It's not concerned about the truth. It can't handle too much of the truth. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians actually tells the believers there they had no capacity to grow, to receive more truth. They had milk. He could only give them milk and not meat. Because they weren't able to receive it, he says in 1 Corinthians 3. But the mind of Christ, the mind of the Spirit is humble. It prefers others. It thinks of them first and more important. It looks beyond the earth. It thinks, how will this actually impact eternity? I mean, in light of eternity, does this really matter? It asks that question. The mind of the Spirit traffics in others, Christ's agenda, God's concerns. It submits to the Bible. 
submits to counsel, it grows in discernment, it's able to eat meat, and because of that. Paul shows us specifically what that kind of mind looks like in Philippians 4.8. Here's the practical tool. It's like an, an electric fence tester that lights up if the mind of the Spirit is present. You don't even need your little brother to figure out whether the, 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 the fence is on, right? Here it is. Here's the electric fence tester that lights up if the mind of the Spirit is present. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell or think on these things to see if your mind or attitude is, is drifting, drifting toward the flesh. That's a, that's a good evaluation grid. I mean, listen, almost no division is ever over doctrine or a moral principle in the church with true Christians. It may start that way, but division in the church, when it moves to the level of division or becomes divisive, it's because personal attitude or selfish ambition has gotten in the way. Somebody got hurt or someone is wanting their way. It's not even about the issue anymore. It's about how people are responding to the issue. It may start over doctrine, but the division comes when someone exalts self and won't walk in the Spirit or treats someone else with the kindness, treats someone else without the kindness of Christ. I mean, you can see things differently and not devolve into division. A few Sundays ago, I don't remember when it, when, when it was, I had a Presbyterian brother here this morning, the, the sermon that I talked about how this passage of Abraham uh, is, is a good passage to show infant baptism is, is not a biblical mode. And his brother was here and he encouraged me after the sermon and I, and I made a joke about, you know, it's a great sermon for a Presbyterian to show up on, you know, right? You can differ about those things, but not be divisive. And you can see things differently and not devolve into division, but that takes work. It's a labor of love, which is what Paul says next. The second characteristic of Christian unity is seen when a, a church pursues one love. Look at verse 2 again. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. Paul, Paul now adds the the hands to the head. Notice I didn't say the heart to the head, which is what you normally think about when you hear the word love. It's on my heart. Right thinking and now hands to action because this word is not about emotion. I mean, being like-minded is now moved to action by having this same love, the, the love that, that Christ loved with. It's a work of love. The unifying work of, of the whole church is the love that Christ exemplified when He took on the nature of a servant. And that labor of humble love will, will unify the church, working toward, toward that. Now, again, I think you have to define, just like you have to define unity, you have to define the word love, because the worldly counterfeits have been twisted together with this biblical idea. I mean, the world defines love as something that's primarily marked by feeling, and it's based on attraction. I feel something because I'm attracted to you. That, that's a good worldly definition. 
One writer said, on a purely emotional level, having equal love for others is impossible because people are not equally attractive. So, I mean, if that's the definition of love, I have feelings for you because I'm attracted to you, well, then you can't love everyone the same. or You can't even fulfill this command. And aren't you glad God's love isn't feeling-based or rooted in how morally attractive you are? I mean, the love of God is not based on how the Lord feels each day. It's immovably anchored in His eternal covenant. It's not based on how strongly your character drew God's love. If, if that was the case, we would have no hope whatsoever. But God's love, the love of God, is not the attractional kind. It's a, it's a love of His committed will. I mean, it's based on the choice of the lover being God to seek the welfare of its object, being you. And that's the kind of love that God has for you. I mean, He first loved us by an act of His free grace because He determined to, for no other reason or, or, or source. And so because biblical love is volitional, it can be commanded of us because it's an act. It's, it's part of our will. We, we, we can choose to love biblically. Now, you obviously have to be ignited with an engine to do that, which is the motive before, because Christ has given you a new heart. But, but once you're a Christian, you can be commanded to love. No doubt you've heard someone say the opposite of that. Maybe even a Christian. Maybe you've said this. I, I've fallen out of love. I just don't love that person anymore. I hear that often in biblical counseling. They say that as if that excuses them from keeping their commitment, their commitment in marriage or whatever it is. Well, I just don't love them anymore, as if that lets them off the hook for the commitment that, that they made. But if you understand biblical love, that's not an excuse. That's actually a confession. What they mean is I just don't have emotion. I just don't have attraction. And biblical love was never based on that. Last Sunday, like a number of my anniversaries, like last Sunday when I was preaching with Tracy sitting on the, the front row, was our 29th wedding anniversary. And I told the church there that she didn't make it that long because of feelings. And the attractional component on my on looking at me is, is, is waning. It was pure, selfless commitment. And you're to maintain that same kind of selfless, committed love toward one another in the body. You don't give up that commitment whenever somebody is, you don't feel it for them anymore. You're not attracted to them or they step on your toes or whatever you do. If you maintain the same kind of selfless, committed love toward the, toward the body, you'll have unity. It doesn't have the same intimate marital component, but the intentional, conscious choice to seek the welfare of this church, your brothers and sisters, a commitment to be devoted to one another in brotherly affection. To prefer one another, honor one another, contribute to the needs of one another, practice hospitality toward one another. That's a Christ-like commitment. One writer said, genuine love is not sentimental affection, but sacrificial service. And I can't have emotions, the same emotions for everyone, or be attracted to everyone the same way, but I can sacrificially live for everyone the same way and therefore have the same biblical love for everyone. What does that love look like? Define it. Give me a commentary on it. 
Pastor. It, it, it's in 1 Corinthians 13. That's the commentary. It describes biblical love, this action of biblical love. It, it's a work of patience. Love is a work of patience. It's kindness toward your sisters. It's, it's to be genuinely thankful for what others have, and not if you have it, not only if you have it. It, it, it thinks better. It never thinks better if you have something yourself. It sees self as a lowly sinner. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way because you have no right to your way. It's not irritable when you're irritated. Or it's not resentful when, when, when you've been done wrong. This takes work. It rejoices with whatever God says, even if it says something about you. The truth. Love carries things even when they're heavy. It believes. It has faith that God will do what He said in all things. It, it looks forward to when He will in hope, and it endures until He does. That's the work that we're called to do as an individual and, and, and as a church. Charles Spurgeon said, Love is a matter of the heart, and if the heart is not right with God, external acts, though they are very similar to the highest acts that flow from love, are of no service. God requires the heart to be right, and if that be not right, then whatever cometh out of us is not acceptable in His sight. Translated, you can't do this in your flesh because your flesh loves itself. And only the Spirit can love like that. And a quick gauge is how is your sacrifice, sacrificing for, for others. But if you are doing that, then, then you'll sense togetherness in the, in, in the body. The third practice or characteristic of Christian unity is observed when the the church preserves one soul. Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in, in spirit. It's only one word in the original. It means souls together. Have your souls together. It means to have a spiritual harmony with, with one another. To be in one accord. To, to live in selfless agreement. Now where same love focused more on the choice or your pursuit... This one does emphasize affection. It, it, it does emphasize a passionate concern. It, it involves your emotions, not in a worldly way. But it's a oneness around the truth that involves a passionate concern for other people, for God, for His work, for, for His church. Have you ever traveled somewhere and you don't know the people at all, but they're genuine Christians and you just feel at home? There's a, there's a witness of the Spirit. There's a spiritual oneness that you couldn't explain. It's the idea of this word. Or maybe you've heard a beautiful chorale, an acapella in perfect harmony, and you listen closely. You can pick out the different parts, but, but they, all, they all blend together perfectly, so they, they, they sound in unison. And they do that because they're all singing off the, the same sheet music of the same composer. You, you've probably heard the opposite as well. Maybe you're listening to an orchestra and all of a sudden a violin comes in off key. Paul says it's the same in the church. You and I are in the same ensemble playing the gospel song we all love and we must practice and play together the, to make the church's music. But if we play with biblical notes, keeping time with the same love, then, then we'll have this word. Believers do that, they, they move as one. D.L. Moody 
had a famous quote, you know, the great evangelist D.L. Moody, Moody Bible Institute. Moody said, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. And Paul says Mr. Moody had the right heart, but, the, but too limited of an aim. It should be the world has yet to see what God could do with a church fully consecrated to him. We aim to be that church. And that church would be one soul. That church would be Philippians 2.2. Two believers who truly realize that they're only slaves of the Lord don't allow inconsequential differences to divide them or hinder them in their primary task of serving their master. I always think of George Whitfield as an illustration of this principle with, with John Wesley. When Whitfield faced the, the threat of division in the church due to, due to Wesley, he never allowed it to rise to a personal level or get in the way of the gospel work. Even when John Wesley changed his theology, you remember they, they started out together. Even when Wesley decided to preach a message against Whitfield, Whitfield knew that it would divide thousands of believers in England, and he begged Wesley not to do it. Wesley did it anyway, and there was a schism that was, that was formed between their, their followers. And after significant attempts to try to, to, to overcome the differences, Whitfield recognized there was little possibility of uniting, and so he gave over his position as the... As head of the group, he stepped aside, paving the way for Wesley's triumph. Several tried to convince Whitfield to stay, saying he would lose his fame and it would cause him to be forgotten by future generations. And Whitfield's reply was one sold. He said, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. What is Calvin or Luther? Let Jesus be our all and all. As long as he is preached, I care not who is uppermost. I know my place even to be servant of all. And I am content to wait until judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. And after I am dead, I desire no other epitaph than this. Here lies George Whitfield. What sort of man he was the great day will discover and even years after the event when Whitfield's ambition, I'm sorry, Wesley's ambition became publicly evident, someone asked Whitfield, did he think he would see Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield replied, I, I fear not, for he will be so near to the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we will hardly get sight of him. If you want a biblical example of that, it's the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. You remember Paul, he comes to Philippi, or he, he comes to, to, to Rome, writing to Philippi. When he, when he gets there, there are some encouraged in preaching the gospel and some preaching out of contention to cause Paul pain. And Paul says, it doesn't matter to me as long as Christ is preached. Are you that way? When someone else gets in the way or steps on your toes or gets credit for your work, do you think it doesn't matter? As long as the gospel's advanced, I'm one soul for the gospel. Or do you think about the way that it was done, or the personal offense, or no one ever recognizes how much you did? You'll never be united in spirit with others with those thoughts. But you will if you have a single preoccupation. Here's the, the last one. Fourth characteristic of Christian unity is maintained when a church is preoccupied with one purpose. Make my joy complete, verse 2, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, 
intent on one purpose. Paul now holds up this fifth or this fourth biblical angle, unity of biblical, first angle, fourth angle of biblical unity. It's the focus on one purpose. It's the same word that he uses for the first one. Remember the thinking word? This is the same word in verbal form. It's a participle, which is why it, it, it's, it, it literally means thinking one thing, which is why it's, it, it's translated intent or uh, intent on one purpose. Every day when you get up, the first thing that you think of whenever you get out of bed, what is it? Besides coffee, I understand. What do you think of after that? What do you think of throughout the day? What preoccupies you? Paul says the one thing that you're thinking about most of the time is what you're living for. It's the governor of your life. There may be seasons whenever you're troubled over something and that's... But, but in general, as you stand back and you, you look at your life as a whole, what are you preoccupied with? Paul says here the, the concentration of the Christian is on God's purpose which is Christ's glory through His church. What's God doing in the world? You know, people ask that question, and you get all kinds of crazy answers. What is God doing in this fallen and broken world? What is He doing about the evil? What, what is God doing? I'll tell you what He's doing. He's bringing glory to His Son through His Son building His church. It's that simple. That's what God is doing in the world. God is bringing glory to His Son by His Son building His church, gathering in the bride that was promised to Him. And there's no daylight possible between people who are all focused on that, that same goal. I mean, divisions can't remain if there's a common yoke, a mutual purpose. It's amazing what a common enemy will, will do, even for people who fight amongst themselves. You watch two brothers try to kill each other and somebody picks on one of them and it's on. I mean, both brothers turn from each other and they're on whoever it is. And we have a common enemy, it's the devil. We have a common purpose. It's the glory of Christ through His church, spreading the gospel. And you must set your mind not on your differences or your own preferences, but on that common purpose, which is Christ's work. A believer, after they've died to self, has been raised to new life and they're... That life is not their own, the life for their master. Now you think his thoughts and you walk in his ways and you study his words and you love what he loves and you hate what he hates and we're about his business and his commission. We live for his glory and we'll be with him forever. You know how Paul summarized that in this letter back in chapter 1? He, he, he said, for me to live is Christ. I mean, Christ's purpose is so intertwined with the Christian life, Paul just says life equals Christ. That's how preoccupied a Christian should be. And the unity of the church is a whole group of people intent on the same purpose. All of our lives, the focus of this church, Christ. And when that's the case, it brings harmony, and when there are other drives mingled in, it can create disunity. It's the one thing that you live for. What purpose are you pursuing? What preoccupies you? Is it, is it Jesus? Is it His love for people? You say, well, I'm not sure. How do I know? Well, Paul says, what one thing dominates your thinking? 
What do you ponder most about? What directs your life? What do you pray most about? What do you spend most of your energy on? That's the one purpose that's governing your life. And if it's anything other than Christ, it needs to bow the knee to King Jesus. Let me get really practical. If the reason that you come to this church, or you're considering this church, is because you like the children's ministry, or an individual pastor, or the music, or even the preacher, it won't be long till one of those things change in your unity will as well. Paul says those things are too small to have as your purpose. He says, lift your eyes higher than that. It's Christ. It's not people. It's the clarity of the Bible, not the style. It's the gospel, not the way that we promote a program. It's the worship of Jesus, not how we sing or, or what. The church exists for one reason, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And Christ as King is stamped on the DNA of unity. Do you have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus? Can you look at His humility, know His mind for you, receive His work, and then not pursue His mind and His love and His spirit and His purpose? And I know better of you, brethren. I do. That's why I miss you. I know you. You're a church that loves Jesus Christ. You're unified around these things, and I am thankful to be part of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I come before you this morning, I praise you for the unity that you've given us. Unity around specific things, around the truths of Scripture, around doctrine, around the commands of of Scripture, the purpose that we have. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to preserve and protect that. And I am thankful. I know of, of no reef in the left east. I know of nothing dividing this church, and I praise you for that. But, but I'm also not dumb enough to believe that, that that's not possible. Satan is ever at work in our hearts. And that dandelion of division starts with one little flower. And I pray that you would preserve this church that we might serve you and make much of Jesus. And I also pray, Lord, this morning for anybody that's here that's outside of a biblical church. Maybe they're listening to this and they say, wow, that sounds wonderful. I don't have that. I pray for them that they'd realize the only way they'll get it is to come to Jesus. And then if they do, he'll wash away all their sins. Give them a new heart and a new life and a new family. And if that family's here, then I pray we would serve them well. And it'll start with them saying yes to you. And I ask all this and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.